Well, let's uh, go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice to be your children, to be your people, and the people of the pasture of our Good Shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to you except through him. We ask this afternoon that you would guide us in our thoughts, in our words, in our reflections upon what is near and dear to you and to us, even your covenant of grace with your people, and upon the way in which uh, we see a contrast between it and the covenant of works, which you established with all mankind in Adam. We thank you for the covenant of grace. We pray that our understanding of the covenant of works would facilitate a greater appreciation for uh, Christ as the second Adam who saves his people from their sins. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, this afternoon we'll be concluding our section uh, or our consideration of the covenant of works in our series on the federal vision. And as I said, once we finish our consideration of the covenant of works, uh, we still want to also consider some issues with the federal vision and some of the teachings that have come out of the federal vision with respect to the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, we're going to be looking at some allegations of social Trinitarianism, of uh, closet tritheism, covenantal Trinitarianism, things like this, coming out of the Wilson camp, out of Canon Press, and alluded to allegedly in the Federal Vision Joint Statement. So be on the lookout for that in ensuing weeks. That should be uh, the, the remainder of our study on this topic. We may yet have a final lecture as well, just summing it all up. But today we're going to be finishing up our consideration of the Covenant of Works, just reminding us here of the quotation from Wilhelmus Abrockel, the great Dutch Second Reformation theologian, quote, Acquaintance with this covenant is of the greatest importance, for whoever errs here or denies the existence of the covenant of works will not understand the covenant of grace and will readily err concerning the mediatorship of the Lord Jesus. Such a person will very readily deny that Christ by his active obedience has merited a right to eternal life for the elect. This is to be observed with several parties who, because they err concerning the covenant of grace, also deny the covenant of works. Conversely, whoever denies the covenant of works must rightly be suspected to be an error concerning the covenant of grace as well. So in Paul's writings, you see this contrast between the works of the law as a means of obtaining life and uh, faith itself, saving, justifying faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his work, his perfect righteousness, his obedience unto death on the cross for sinners. And that contrast reflects this contrast between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. When we lose this contrast, when we blur the lines of distinction between these two methods of justification in the sight of God, either man's personal obedience or the imputed obedience and righteousness, on the other hand, of the God-man Christ Jesus, when we blur the lines between these two things, 
we undermine the distinctiveness of the gospel. We've looked at the Federal Vision Joint Statement. I'm not going to rehash all that we considered last time. You can go back and listen to the recording. Um, But the Federal Vision suffice to say, in its joint statement and in the quotations we read from Rich Lusk, they are seeking to blur the lines between the covenant of grace and the covenant with Adam, which we call the covenant of works. We call it a covenant of life because the reward that was set before Adam was eternal life. We call it a covenant of works because the requirement placed upon Adam in that covenant was personal, perfect, perpetual obedience to the law of God. And the Federal Vision tries to argue that because, because they can characterize that requirement as obedience that was flowing from faith and from the heart and all of these kinds of things, therefore it was a covenant of grace. And they're missing the fundamental difference that in the covenant of works, whether it flows from faith, whether it flows from a heart of love, regardless of these things, which we don't deny, it fundamentally hinged upon Adam's performance from the heart by faith, but still his performance. Whereas in the covenant of grace, uh, our salvation, our righteousness, our eternal life hinges on the performance of another, even Jesus Christ, the second Adam. So uh, in one sense, uh, God's covenant with mankind through Adam hinges on the obedience of Adam. And God's covenant uh, with his elect through Christ hinges on the obedience of the second Adam. So there's symmetry there, Uh, but the federal vision wants to see both of these as fundamentally the same, fundamentally grounded in faith-based performance or obedience. Now, uh, I think we adequately refuted that position last time, but we want to go in detail and show the scriptural evidence for the covenant of works. And so you'll see on the flip side of your handout, scriptural evidence for the covenant of works. And we're going to do this by way of a series of propositions based upon the scripture. First, scripture repeatedly references a divine promise of eternal life to mankind upon the condition of perfect obedience to God's law. You see this in Jesus' dealings with the rich young ruler who, like many of his day, fancied himself to be righteous. And he comes to Jesus. He thinks he's good. You know, he thinks Jesus is good. He thinks he's good. He wants to know what good thing he can do to inherit eternal life. Uh, Matthew 19, verse 16, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. And this is Jesus' way, not of denying his own divinity, but what he's saying is that among the children of Adam, there is no one righteous, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there's only one good, and there's only one standard of goodness, the character of God. Perfect goodness is what is required to have fellowship with a perfectly good God. So he's establishing the the perfect standard of God's law. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. If you want to enter into life, in other words, a life that you haven't yet entered into. He's probably speaking here of heavenly life. 
in the life to come. Um, If you want to have eternal life, then you need, as Romans 5 says of Adam and then of Christ, righteousness unto eternal life. You need to keep the commandments to enter into life. So Jesus is citing here a divine promise of eternal life to mankind upon the condition of perfect obedience to God's law. Uh, The rich young ruler said to Jesus, which ones? So he's trying to dumb down the standard. Which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So on the one hand, Jesus is saying, okay, I'm going to prove that you're a sinner. I'm going to prove that you, like the publican at the temple, need to cry out, God be merciful to me, a sinner, and go down to your house justified through faith in me. I'm going to prove that by requiring you to stop loving your money. Now, in doing that, he's showing that that man is, uh, has an inadequate righteousness. He's showing that he's fallen short of the glory of God, that he hasn't kept the Ten Commandments, and therefore he's not a good person And he cannot have fellowship with the perfectly good God because he can't enter into life because he hasn't kept the commandments perfectly. On the other hand, it's clear that Jesus is joining this together with a call to repentance. In other words, go sell everything that you have. The fact that you won't, the fact that you don't want to, proves that you need to be justified. But also, if you're going to follow me, you're going to need to give that up. And so you you see the call to faith in Christ's perfect righteousness combined with a call to leave behind the idol uh, in his life, to repent. But notice, you will have treasure in heaven. So Jesus equates entering into life by keeping the commandments with having treasure in heaven. So again, a divine promise of eternal life to mankind upon the condition of perfect obedience to God's law. God has promised eternal life, even heavenly life, that we enter into based on keeping God's commandments. That's how Jesus deals with this man. He humbles him and shows him his need for justification, but he also calls him to repentance to leave behind that sin. And it's amazing to me how many people uh, struggle to see both elements in this passage Uh, We either go to the extreme of saying, well, Jesus is only telling him he needs to be justified and he's not calling him to actually repent and get rid of his money. Or on the other hand, he's not pointing to justification at all. He's just saying, hey, keep the commandments, repent and be a godly person and walk in the ways of God's law and, and be saved, be a sanctified Christian or something like that, calling him merely to repentance. But it's both. And when you evangelize people, okay, it's both. When you're at the abortion clinic preaching to women that are about to kill their baby, you're pointing out the fact that they're wanting to kill their baby as evidence that they need to be justified. You're going to an abortion clinic to murder your baby. So you are guilty. You need the righteousness of Christ. You need his death and resurrection. You need his perfect righteousness and obedience unto death. But then you're also calling the woman to actually leave the abortion clinic and to repent 
and, and, and seek the Lord in that manner as well. It's faith and repentance. So Jesus combines the two, but there's no doubt that he is citing a promise of God of eternal life to mankind on the condition of keeping God's law. You can see this again, Luke 10, 26. Or verse 25, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So the guy quotes, uh, you know, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he wanting to justify himself. So it's clear Jesus is rebuking the idea that you can actually do this and live. That this is somehow just a call to repentance and salvation. Jesus is saying, no, you can't do this. Stop trying to justify yourself, confess your sin, recognize you need a perfect righteousness to inherit eternal life. Now, of course, again, the outflow of that is going to be loving your neighbor, but uh, there, there's a reference there to entering into eternal life. Do this and you will live. Uh, we, we saw in the sermon this morning, Romans 2.13, which tells us that not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Romans 7, verse 10. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. So in other words, God, God's law was intended when God created man in his own image and placed him in the garden and set up the covenant of works with Adam, the commandment was intended to bring life, but now in man's fallen state, it brings only death and condemnation. Romans 10, 5 and 6. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above. In other words, Christ did it. Christ came down. Christ obeyed the law. Christ suffered. Christ rose again from the dead. Okay, uh, the, the law of faith, or the righteousness of faith, is pointing to what Christ did. But the righteousness of the law, Moses says, if you do these things, you will have life by them. So there is a promise of life uh, upon keeping God's law. Galatians 3, verse 11 but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. And there's a reference there to Leviticus 18.5, which people say, well, this is talking about God's covenant of grace. It's talking about believers in their sanctification, keeping God's law and enjoying life and fellowship with him, but that's actually not the way Paul uses it, and that's not what it's saying. Leviticus 18.5, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, literally in the Hebrew, which if Adam, Adam, if a man, and it's referring us back to Adamic humanity. This is saying 
keep my law in your relationship with me because this is also the law that I revealed as the way of eternal life to Adam, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. But notice Paul says that that verse is uh, contrasted with justification by faith. Justification by faith says you receive Christ's righteousness. You have life by faith in him. But that verse, as he quotes it, means that it's, it's not a faith. It's something you do to obtain life. So again, there's this uh, clear articulation of a divine promise of eternal life to mankind upon the condition of perfect obedience to God's law. Now, secondly, God established this promise with mankind either before the fall or afterward. Logically, it's one of the two. Either he promised eternal life upon the keeping of his commandments before the fall or after the fall. Well, we know God did not establish this promise after the fall since mankind was already guilty in Adam and thereby disqualified from offering perfect obedience to his commandments. So whatever promise that is being referenced by Jesus, by Paul, um, by Moses, this promise that's being referenced, the way they're using it is making it clear that it's no longer in effect. It's no, it, it no longer yields eternal life because all mankind are condemned. Yes, the law was ordained unto life, but it becomes death because Adam sinned, because we've sinned. It, it essentially has disqualified mankind from being able to use it in that way. And so all the references that we just looked at are references where God's prophets and apostles are drawing people's attention to the fact that you can't keep this promise. You, you, you can't fulfill the terms of this promise, this covenant of works. Okay? So it's clear God didn't establish the promise after it became obsolete through sin. Uh, he didn't establish the promise after man was disqualified. What sense would that make? Uh, we're told that in numerous passages, Romans 3.20 among them, therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So Romans 2.13 says the doers of the law will be justified, but Romans 3.20 says at this point in history, after the fall, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight because of sin. So the promise wasn't made before Uh, or after the fall. It was made before the fall. God must have established this promise before the fall. And third point, there's evidence of this promise of eternal life in God's providential dealings with Adam before the fall. There's evidence of it. Notice we didn't start in Genesis 2 and 3. We start with the clear propositional teachings of Christ and the apostles as the lens through which we view it. And now that we have that teaching, we go back to Genesis 2 and 3, and we begin to say, ah, I know what Christ and the apostles are talking about. It makes sense in light of what they've taught us, because now we look back on Genesis 2 and 3, and we begin to say, ah, uh, there's evidence of this promise of eternal life in God's providential dealings with Adam before the fall. So first, God placed Adam in paradise. Scripture identifies paradise as a type of heaven. In fact, the word paradise is used in reference to the thief on the cross. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in 
paradise. Paradise is heaven. And, and so the, the Edenic paradise that God made for Adam and placed him in and put Adam and Eve there to be tested, that is pointing ahead to the heavenly life that Jesus says the rich young ruler, keep these commandments, you'll enter into life, you'll have treasure in heaven. The fact that Eden is called a paradise points us to heavenly fellowship with God. It's a type of heaven. 2 Corinthians 12, 3 and 4, Paul refers to going to the third heaven as going to paradise. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. Behold, he is... I'm sorry, wrong one. 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So the tree of life and the paradise of God are references to heaven. People that have overcome and endured to the end, they enter into heaven. And heaven is described as the paradise of God with the tree of life, which tells us that all these references in Genesis 2 and 3 are meant to bring Adam's attention and ours to the hope of heavenly life that was offered to him in the covenant of works. Secondly, we see God instituted the weekly Sabbath, with scripture, which Scripture identifies as a type of everlasting heavenly rest. Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Hebrews 4, 9 through 11. There's a Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God. We enter into our rest from our labors. Revelation 14, 13. So as uh, Gerhardus Voss famously said uh, in his, um, what is it? can't remember which book it was, Eschatology of the Psalter maybe, but he, he famously said that in the Bible, eschatology precedes soteriology. So the doctrine of the last things is referenced before any uh, indication of the doctrine of salvation or any reference to salvation at all, because the institution of the Sabbath immediately points mankind's attention forward to eternal heavenly rest before there is even any need for salvation or for the revelation of salvation. Uh, and again, it shows that in the covenant of works before the fall, there was an expectation of heavenly rest. That's the purpose of the Sabbath. Thirdly, God planted the tree of life in the garden before the fall. And Scripture identifies the tree of life as a sim symbol of the everlasting, unlosable, heavenly life secured for believers by Christ. So Genesis 2.9 says God put the tree of life there. Now regardless of whether Adam and Eve ate from that tree prior to the fall, that, that's a debatable point. We're not going to mess around with that question. But the fact of the matter is God put it there to symbolize what? Well, what does the tree of life symbolize? Uh, the federal visionists would want us to think that God's covenant with Adam uh, was simply that he would remain in the garden indefinitely, uh, contingent on his obedience in some sense. If he, if he sinned, he would be kicked out. But it's just this perpetual limbo state. But the tree of life in Scripture is a symbol of the everlasting, unlosable heavenly life secured for believers by Christ. And so you can see Revelation 22, verse 2 and verse 14, the reference to the tree of life 
is a reference to what believers inherit in heaven. Now, if Adam was never offered unlosable heavenly life, then the tree of life couldn't represent unlosable righteousness and eternal life. And if it doesn't represent unlosable life and righteousness, then the fact of the matter is that using it in the book of Revelation would be very troublesome because then the the symbol of what we hope will be unlosable righteousness and eternal life is a symbol of something that was losable, right? You, You can't use the symbol of the tree of life in the context of our eternal heavenly rest in Christ unless it actually symbolizes that which is unlosable. So Adam was offered, had he kept the commandment, had he persevered through the trial, he would have received an unlosable heavenly life. And that's why you can use the tree of life in both covenants. Fourthly, actually I'm going to skip number four. Fifthly, Adam is called the Son of God, Luke 3.38, indicating that humanity's chief end was not to be suspended indefinitely upon its own obedience, but to abide in the house forever, since John 8.35 says a son abides forever. So God made Adam and Eve in his own image and likeness, which is language of sonship and daughtership. God did not create mankind to live in an everlasting limbo state where they could get up in the morning and sin and lose it all at any moment. Uh, Think of the anxiety of that type of a situation. God created man so that he could pass that initial test, which sadly he failed, but he'd pass the test and enter into life by keeping the commandment from the heart by faith out of love for God and would inherit an unlosable eternal life. Just like the angels, by the way. We don't think that the angels who persevered and didn't fall with Satan We don't think that the elect angels can fall away, do we? Okay. So uh, they've never sinned. They had a test set before them, and they passed it, and they're confirmed forever in righteousness. Would have been the same for Adam as a son of God. Now, fourthly, there's confirmation of this teaching in other parts of Scripture. Again, what is the teaching? It's that God promises eternal life to mankind in the covenant of works, upon condition of perfect personal perpetual obedience. Uh, God established this promise with mankind before the fall. Uh, You can see Genesis 2, the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil gives evidence that God's saying, if you sin, you're lost. And as we've seen from these other passages of Scripture, there's an implied promise, if you keep the command, you'll enter into life. And we see evidence of that as we saw in Genesis 2 and 3. But there's confirmation of this teaching in other parts of Scripture. For instance, Hosea 6, 4 through 7. Hosea 6, 4 through 7. O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud. And like the early dew, it goes away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And your judgments are like light that goes forth. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. So he's saying, Ephraim, you started off well, but, and we can almost say in the womb of the morning, 
at the very earliest part of the day, uh, you faded out. Your faithfulness is like a morning cloud. It, it starts off well, and then it just fades away. And, of course, this is a fit description of Adam in the garden. As a morning cloud, his faithfulness, it started in, in the morning of uh, human history. It started off strong, and then very quickly he sinned and brought in all of the sin and misery that we see in this world. His faithfulness, uh, his uh, knowledge of God, his, his uh, mercy and loving kindness, his obedience, it faded away. And so verse 7 naturally follows, but like men, but again the word here is literally like Adam, but like Adam, they, meaning Ephraim, transgressed the covenant. There they dealt treacherously with me. So just like Adam started strong, but then betrayed me and rejected me and was treacherous and faded away. His faithfulness faded like the morning cloud. In the same way, Ephraim uh, has been unfaithful to the covenant. So Adam broke the covenant of works. Ephraim is unfaithful to the covenant of grace. That's confirming everything that we're saying here. Also, Romans 5, verse 12 Romans 5, verse 12, which is perhaps the the most clear exposition of this teaching. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Now listen to this. Who is a type of him who was to come? Now we saw last time, uh, Federal Vision wants to say that, well, uh, Noah is a second Adam, and Abraham is an Adam, and Israel is another Adam. Uh, But the fact is, of course, you can draw analogies between various Bible characters and Adam. Right? Noah and his sons are to be fruitful and multiply. Okay, uh, Christians today are to be fruitful and multiply. And oh, okay, we're all Adam. And, and Okay, that's interesting. But the biblical emphasis is that there is the first Adam and that he is a type of him who was to come. There's a first Adam and a second Adam. In other words, the last Adam. He says, but the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense, that's Adam's sin, many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment came from one offense, which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. What's he saying? He's saying... Adam was one step from eternal life and uh, unbroken fellowship with God. He was one step. He didn't have a sin debt to pay. He didn't have to be obedient unto death. He didn't have to suffer. He just had to obey God's commandments and enter into life. But the second Adam, who gives us the free gift of salvation, he purchased that gift in a way that far exceeds what Adam did. Adam was one step from glory. Jesus was two steps from bringing his people to glory. Because 
his work, the work of Christ, came after many offenses. So he had to bear the result of those offenses on the cross and suffer and die through his, what we call sometimes passive obedience. He had to suffer and he had to perfectly obey God's law in every precept and command. So that's the point Paul's making, that what Christ did is like what Adam did, but it goes far beyond because he had to remedy the, the, the mess that Adam created and then fulfill what Adam originally was called to do. Picking up verse 17, For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So he's saying it's different, but fundamentally it's the same. You have a covenantal representative. Adam is the head of the human race. The covenantal representative, he sins, death and misery and sin spread. Guilt is imputed. Christ is one man, the covenant representative of his people, his elect, and he brings in righteousness in life. Verse 18, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. So Adam failed to bring justification of life, Christ succeeded. But it implies that Adam had that set before him. There was a covenant of works. The law was ordained to life. Adam failed. It's not that Adam had no opportunity, it's that he failed and Christ succeeded. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, constituted sinners, better translation, so also by one man's obedience, many will be constituted righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. As that Uh, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, I'm not going to go to all the other passages here, but you can look up 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. Uh, Death came to all mankind through Adam. Life has come through Christ. Christ is called the last Adam. And it's clear from those verses that There's a vast superiority in terms of the eternal life that Christ has purchased for us as compared with anything enjoyed in Eden before the fall. Adam had a dust body. Adam, uh, you know, is our earthly father. The Lord Jesus Christ is our covenantal head, our mediator. He's a life-giving spirit. He brings glorification that... Uh, in principle is the same as what was offered to Adam, but if you read those verses, you'll see that it it far exceeds it. Um, Being saved by Emmanuel, God with us, and dwelling with the God-man for eternity is far more in that sense than what Adam could have ever achieved through the the covenant of works. But uh, in substance, he still was offered unlosable eternal life in heaven. So... um, That's the scriptural evidence for the covenant of works. That's why our confessional position is what it is. You can see some references there in the shorter and larger catechisms. You can read up as well in the confession of faith. These 
propositions, these scripture references. We need to understand them. We need to be able to explain them to people uh, to be able to show the superiority of what Christ, the second Adam, has accomplished as compared with the first Adam. Does anybody have any questions? Will. Is it safe to con- still consider Adam as a type of Christ? I think yes. I think we can look at Adam prior to the fall as a type of Christ. Uh, I will, on the outline handout that we're going to post on Sermon Audio, I'll try to include uh, an additional resource that I've created showing the connection between Adam and Christ and the typological relationships there. For instance, um, Adam was tempted in a lush garden Christ was tempted in the wilderness. You see a, a, a number of very edifying comparisons and contrasts between the first and second Adam, but I'll be sure to put that uh, on the uh, sermon audio download page there so that you can look at those. And I'll maybe send an email out to the church as well. In fact, I think if you go to reform.com forward slash handouts, it's probably available there as we speak. Any other questions? Lord God, we pray that you would cause these truths to increase our love for Christ, the second Adam, uh, the one who says, as it were in the words of Isaiah, I and the children whom thou hast given me, we thank you, Lord not only that you created Adam in your own image and that you've given us physical life through him, but for the second Adam, uh, that we might be his spiritual seed, his spiritual offspring by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that we would be filled with that Holy Spirit and that we would walk in newness of life, rejoicing to be members of your church and of your glorious covenant of grace. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.